1: So it is episode two of our brand new interview series, The Head and Heart Work Conversations. And this week's episode is with the phenomenal Virgie Tovar, who is like a, as you guys will know, find out, a internationally renowned weight-based discrimination lecturer and body positive champion. And yeah, I'm like so excited to air this episode.
2: Yeah, for sure. This this interview was super fun. And I think it is really fun to be able to talk to somebody like Virgie who is obviously super intelligent well researched is sort of focusing on um like the impact of um weight-based discrimination and and how it, it's all planning out and like sort of knows that and is also just like really accessible right oh my <laughs> and God, it's like so funny super and charming. funny and good to talk to and I think um you know, when we're having these types of conversations about different systems of oppression and discrimination, it can feel really serious because mm-hmm. it is serious, right? Yeah. Like the implications of it are incredibly serious. Yes. Um, But being able to talk about it in a way that is like, yeah, it's really serious. And also we're, we're humans existing in it and we right. can still find ways to, to feel empowered and feel loved and Joyful. connect with each other. Yes. Right. Yeah. At the same time. um, I think it's just really affirming and it, it, like, it, it, I think it welcomes an idea of liberation that is, like, inclusive and exciting for for folks, right? Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, we could be doing things so much differently, and it seems cool. Like, it yeah, seems like yeah, a cool yeah, way yeah. to be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: It's not all pain-based. Yes, um, absolutely. Virgie reminds me a little bit of Brene Brown in that I think the reason why Brene is so successful is, like, her work is based in research mm-hmm. and it's like this humanity based research, you know, about shame and, and guilt and things like that. And Virgie is the same sort of scholar. You know, she backs up her work with, you know, years of research and also her lived experience and other fat activists. And um, I find that like really inciting and powerful. Um, and I love listening to the results of that research. And also the thing I think I appreciate most about Virgie and this conversation and what I hope our listeners take from it is, at least for me, when I think about body body positivity um, resources, I often first think of like the Instagrammable body positivity. Mm. You know, it's very white. It's often like more thin more quote average bodies mm-hmm. right you know what i mean and it's it's all about you know giving ourselves permission to have back roles and like <laughs> right you know guess what i have to tell you something i have acne you know like it's mm. it's these while they're imper- important it's these surface level small acts of freedom right that we give ourselves permission right. to, like, have roles and give ourselves permission to have, like, bad skin or whatever, you know. But what I love about the conversations and the work that Virgie does and this conversation in particular is that Virgie pushes us to question, like, why we why we need to give ourselves permission in the first place. Mm-hmm. Her work is so intersectional. Um, it's so... Truly liberating, I think, when we think about body positivity, it's not just saying "I'm beautiful," even though I'm fat. Mm. It's saying "fat is beautiful." Yeah. Who taught me that it wasn't? Who mm-hmm. and who is in power? Who 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 likes to keep these feelings down? For you sure. know.
2: Yeah, and I also just really appreciated that we got to have a really in-depth conversation with her about dating. Yes. Too, right. Totally. Because I think that that. um is not always something that you might get from some of the activists that you might follow in other places. But like, we talked about what it is like to date as a fat person, right? right? Like, and what are the experiences of that? And what are some of the tools that that folks can use to sort of protect their peace from the awfulness, the commodification of dating, Absolutely. right? And the ways in which it is so transactional, and it is so surface level. Um, And I just I really appreciated not only that we talked about sort of, the theory of like what a liberated world could look like, but also some of the like, here's a thing that you could try right now to help you mm-hmm. get in a different mindset about about body weight and about liberation and what that could look like. Yeah, so,
1: so get ready to get in a different mindset.
2: I'm so excited.
1: With a conversation with Virgie Tovar. Welcome to Just Break Up, the podcast about love, heartbreak, and all the relationship advice you don't want to hear. My name is Sierra Demolder,
2: And I'm Sam Blackwell.
1: And this week on Head & Heart Work Conversations, we're talking to Virgie Tovar. Virgie, whose pronouns are she, her, is an author, activist, and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on weight-based discrimination and body image. She is the author of You Have a Right to Remain Fat?, and The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color, as well as a forthcoming book in 2022 titled Body Positive Journal. She is the host of the podcast Rebel Eaters Club, and she is the founder of Body Positive University, a one-stop virtual campus for transformative, comprehensive, and fun body positive education. Virgie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, Thank you for having me. I am so thrilled to um, bring you to our Just Breakup audience, many of whom I know are already huge appreciators of your work, and I um, I'm so thrilled to have this conversation with you today with Sam for so many reasons. But uh, honestly, the thing that comes to the forefront of my mind is the number one thing that I appreciate about your work. Um, you are by far, I think, the most intersectional body positive educator out there, um, and that might be my limited scope, <laughs> but I it is something that Sam and I strive to 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 be in our work um, to to recognize that there are so many interwoven threads, interlocking systems of oppression, and that it influence who we are and and our relationships to ourselves and to others. And you do such an eloquent, empowering, and like you said, like. Fun! Your work is just so accessible and um, intersectional. I'm just—I couldn't be a bigger fan of your voice and and the resources that you're putting out there in the world. Mm, thank you so much. You're welcome. I just wanted to like shower you in compliments at <laughs> <in> the beginning <laughs> yes. of this episode. <laughs>
2: So, um, Virgie, echo everything that Sierra said. We're super excited that you're here, and you are somebody that a lot of our listeners asked us to talk to. So we were really thrilled when you agreed to to be part of this. Um, but I'm really interested in hearing more about how you got into this work around body positivity. Um, what what's your journey, and how did you how did you get into this, and what brought you to today?
0: Yeah. Um, I, uh, well, I mean, I grew up in, I'm a, I'm, I've am always been fat. Um, I was a fat kid. I come from a fat family. Um, when I look at pictures of my ancestors, they look like me, you know, and I, and I just kind of want to sidebar yeah. say that I think there is this cultural belief that fat people are some kind of modern anomaly and I'm just like no Mm. there have always been fat people I have pictures of them (laughs) I'm related to them (laughs) and um, you know and I think you know and the other thing that, that I've been thinking of like I'm about to turn 40 and I've been noticing like they all are like, you know, a lot of the pictures of them are when they're older. I'm like, they're old fat people, which are like things that we're told yes. just can't <laughs> exist. Right. Like, like, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. yep. I, and so I don't know, like all. But anyway, that's a bit of a sidebar. But anyway, um, so I've always been fat and I've always lived in a culture that is really hostile and discriminatory um, and hateful of fat people. And I was someone like a lot of us who end up ended up in the crosshairs of that, And that history of fat hatred is so awful and gross and connected to colonialism and connected to racism and sexism and, you know, all these kinds of things that are so awful. And uh, but, you know, like when I became a victim to fat phobia at the age of five, you know, I mean, I was probably experiencing mm-hmm. or I imagine mm-hmm. I experienced fat phobia even before then, right? Like I'm sure my mother got pathologized for being a fat pregnant woman who, you know, basically like saw pregnancy as an opportunity to like eat for the first time in her life without shame after years of wow. disordered eating. Um, but I mean, I know that sure. I know that like she experienced that and I probably experienced that before I even remember. But I don't I do Never had that overt experience of somebody, like, outright just hating me because I'm fat until I was five. And and it kind of didn't stop. Like, once it started, it just kept going from, like, kindergarten all the way until mm. I finished high school. It was, like, relentless. And the experience really destroyed my sense of self, my sense of curiosity, my sense of connection with the world, my sense of mm. my own anything right like i just i thought i was like this horrible awful terrible monster and and i think it was specifically mm-hmm. because i got the messaging that it was my fault that i was experiencing this cuz the whole thing was like you're fat because you eat too much and if you stopped eating so much people would treat you well and when it's kind mm-hmm. of when it's kind of presented in that victim blaming framework it's really difficult to not just hate yourself and feel ashamed and feel like, you know, you you you're the one to blame and all this stuff. So, that went on for a really long time. Um I by total happenstance ended up dating someone who was fat positive and he didn't really identify with those words necessarily, but he was absolutely that. Um and he really helped me feel like for the first time in my adult life, like, uh, you know, since I was a really small kid, that you know, my body was okay and and that my body was like sexy mm. and beautiful and fine. Mm. um and and he also didn't expect me to stay the same size, which is kind of like the silent contract, I think, in a lot of relationships that I had been in before. was that like I either have to stay for the sure. same size or I have to end up smaller. Um, Yeah. So I really appreciated. I mean, it was like really revolutionary at like 24 or 25 to have this experience. And then again, a sort of another happenstance, I was in graduate school for sexuality studies. I got really interested in weight and like how weight discrimination impacted gender trajectories, um, which you know, was something that I experienced. I essentially like, you know, because of fat phobia, I had a lot of gender confusion um, because I wasn't getting mm. any of the social cues uh, of like a fa- like a, a normal sort of uh, feminine person. Um, like I was wow. getting a lot of masculine cues. So I was like, it was really, it was kind of confusing. Like I mean, I couldn't find clothing in the girl section. So I just dropped in the boys section. And I think that was very confusing to me. Um, the fact that boys treated me like neither, like a boy or a girl, like I wasn't their friend, but I, they didn't want to be my boyfriend. So I was like some weird in between thing. um, you know, and so I had a lot of like confused feelings about gender and I wanted to study that and see if that was a phenomenon that other fat women, particularly fat women of color had experienced. And it turned out that, that they had, at least the people I spoke to. Um, and that just launched me into fat activism. I sort of like really luckily came across it. Like someone heard that I was doing this research, introduced me to a bunch of people. And it was like at the point in the activism where it was very sort of viral and groundswell. Um, And uh, and and my life just kind of changed after that. You know, like I had had been a feminist for years. By that point, I had you know, I was political. I was an anti-racist. Like I was somebody who had done a lot of political work already. Mm -hmm. And no one, no Mm -hmm. one had told me that it was okay to be fat. Um, you know, Mm. and it was just kind of mind boggling because I, I mean, when you get into the research, you realize how connected it is to race and the construction of race. You realize how connected it is to gender. Um, and so, you know, it was just, so anyway, like for the first time in my life at like 30 years old, someone says it's okay for you to be fat. You do not have to restrict food and diet and you're absolutely fine and amazing just the way that you are. Like I had a community of people saying that. And um and they were fat yeah. too, you know. So anyway, like the so i basically like once that happened, I just sort of I was like, this this vi- this saved my life, this revitalized me, this energizes me, this work is so complex, it's so interesting and it's so personal. Um, and I just dedicated my life to it and I just sort of found like there was a lot of interest in the conversation, like I was getting book to do speaking engagements and I had a book a uh, book contract before I even finished graduate school. And so I think, you know, I just mm-hmm. felt like there was a lot of hunger for the conversation and I felt like I was just sort of there at that moment, you know?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: That's so um I love that your path
1: was also inspired by research that you naturally like authentically sought after. Yeah. Um I So for like a basic intro question to start us off, um, how would you define um, body positivity, Um, maybe um, fat positivity? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about how you've seen that manifest within the context of relationships, romantic and otherwise.
0: Yeah, I mean, so body positivity is, I mean, I think of body positivity is almost like, um, it's like a catch-all phrase that covers a lot of ground. I know. Um, So it's like a spectrum, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's honestly like it, it, body positivity came, in my vocabulary, came after fat positivity. And a lot of that has to do, I mean, not surprisingly, actually, it's because fat positivity really, like body positivity as a conversation really emerged as fat positivity began to go really viral and became like, you know, Definitely. and mm-hmm. so I, I do think chronologically it kind of even makes sense. Um, yeah. So, I mean, to be fair, the term body positivity has been around for a minute, um, but it, it didn't become like a, the, it wasn't like the buzzword that it was at, you know, in the nineties when like lesbian yeah. feminists were using it, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah. so yeah. I think like, you know, that's, that's important context, but, So anyway, I think of body positivity as like a as a as sort of, you know, I think of it as the entry point phrase for anything related to critically engaging with cultural frameworks around bodies, um, which is largely based in like negativity, judgment and shame. Um, mm. and for and sure, so there's sure. that. and and I think specifically, I do think of body positivity as, you know, I have this model when I talk about that phobia, which is a form of bigotry um, against higher weight people. I use a three-dimensional model to help explain um how it looks. So the first dimension is the intrapersonal how you feel about yourself. Um the second is interpersonal mm-hmm. how other people treat you based on your body and the third is institutional like how much ease mm-hmm. you know or mm-hmm. not ease do you navigate society because of your body um and so like i i often think of body positivity as largely focused on that first question the relate or the first dimension that that relationship to yes. the self um, and so, and I think when I think about like fat activism and other movements, um, they're largely interested in the third component, the social, the societal component, um, because that's where, you know, sure. the more marginalized you are, the more you're getting hit again and again and again at that third level. And I mean, I, I kind of, I want to get a little bit deeper into that for a second, because I think it's, it's useful to think yeah. about. So like, for example, you know, I can be a, like, someone can be a higher weight person and have no problem with being fat like absolutely just thinks they're great or doesn't even think about it. It's just like, my life is fine. I am good with my body. But they can walk outside their house and just get slammed with discrimination they're going to experience like they're going to have a wage gap compared to their smaller counterparts they are going to be considered less viable as an employee they're going to be considered less you know all these things that we know from research about that that people have about higher weight people and like like conversely someone can have a very 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 negative and painful relationship to how they see themselves and go outside their house and not experience any of that Um, and so Mm -hmm. I think it's important to understand like those nuances. So anyway, um, so I think of like, so body positivity is that to me, like I I define fat positivity as like, not just seeing fat people as people who deserve basic dignity, human rights and respect. Um, but also fat people as like beautiful and interesting and a unique contribution to body diversity. Um, and I, right. I think it's really important, right? Because Right, like, I mean, and I think fat positivity is really important to me because we just don't have any of that. In our culture, no, right? Um, yeah, and so I think there is a little bit of like a, a like a labor of love where it's like you know no we can't like maybe I mean I don't want to I don't want to put put words in anybody's mouth or anything like that but I think you know for me it's like no I don't know that neutrality is enough when we're talking about a group of people who is who have been so acutely marginalized and who are still being acutely marginalized I think we actually yeah. go into mm-hmm. like filling up the well a little bit here.
2: Brands
1: By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. This past month, I treated myself to a pair of new slippers because I'm in that hashtag mom life era of my life um, in which... (laughs) Um, I am never not in slippers and these are 100% Australian shearling lined clog slippers and I love that they're slip on but they have those durable rubber outsoles they're super cushy super comfortable but I feel like I can run outside to like take the trash out in them while also like staying warm and active in the house
2: get warm weather ready with quince go to quince.com slash just break up for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q u i n c e.com slash just break up to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash just break up
0: You probably know how bad it is if for fat people in the dating world for the most right. part. Um, for sure. So I don't know that we need mm-hmm. to, like, super cover that because I think most people can probably intuit that or, like, have had that experience. Right. I don't know that right. – I mean, I don't necessarily, for example, know that people know – you know, just how bad it is sometimes. Um, like, I think one of the things that really strikes me when I talk to other fat people, especially like fat feminine people, is um, the, the specific ways that, uh, that fat phobia impacts them. And like one, for example, that's a little bit maybe unexpected and really painful um, is that, you know, I, I remember attending a conference and someone talked about fat phobia as sexual violence, and they were talking about mm. the specific ways in which fat phobia eroded at the sense of self and the sense of worth to such an extent that like a fat person's consent was compromised and that people would weaponize that, wow. that compromised consent. Um, and I mean, I just felt that in my body like so much when she was saying it because I, I just think about all the times, like I think about my, especially my early sexual experiences were largely based on, um, Severe of severe sense of scarcity and the sense that I was bringing absolutely mm. nothing to the table, um, yeah. and so I felt yeah. like I had to, you know, perform more, have fewer boundaries, say no less, you know, m- make sort of compromises that didn't feel great to me um, because I was, totally. because, you know, out of out of all kinds of things, so. And I mean, there's some research that even indicates that, like, fat women um, advocate for condom usage less, um, and, and it's, like, believed mm. that it's because mm. of some of these things. So I think there's really big implications for this. But when I think about, you know, uh, I don't know, like, the the antidote or whatever, um, like, body-positive dating or fat-positive dating, um, I just have so many – like, I have so many beautiful thoughts, and I've had some really – I've had the good fortune of being in, like, I mean, I, don't, I think I've advocated for and looked for these kinds of relationships. And I've also had luck around it, to be completely fair. Yeah. But I, you know, I just think about like qualities of these relationships are, you know, things like, um, they're not being body and food criticism like in the relationship like i remember mm-hmm. when i first right. like yeah. my first really big the like when i mean first of all i didn't for years i didn't think i could even have standards or set boundaries for dating and then i eventually did i finally like especially after i was introduced to fat activism i felt empowered to start actually setting boundaries and having intentions in my dating life um and so the fir- the first really big one that fundamentally changed my dating life was I a zero tolerance around someone talking negatively about my body or how I was eating and I found yeah. that it vet so many people and, and I think specifically the zero tolerance component where it was like you know it doesn't matter if it's date one date two date three or date seven it it's over yeah um and, and I think that yeah. Sure. The interesting thing about that, perhaps not surprisingly, is that like, yeah, that person's not going to wait till date 7 to fat shame you. Um, like that person is <laughs> going sure, to they're going to out themselves. Yes, like it's going to be yeah. like date 1 or date 2 they're going to it's going to be like really overt. Um, and so that totally changed who I dated. It was just it was so drastic. Yeah. And I mean it makes it makes so much sense, but it's like I really think it just goes to show the power of boundaries. Um and I think for yeah. me as mm. someone who has a lot of trauma from fat phobia but also has a lot of childhood trauma, like having those really rigid rules at first really helped me. Um, I think like, you know, as we get I, I, for anybody who's like got a lot of trauma and, and is recovering their self-trust, it's okay to have rigid rules for as long as you need to yeah. have them. Um, and so, you know, yeah. for me, I think that was a really good rule to have rigidity around. But, you know, like, for example, I, I, and I have certainly shared that information. People have been like, but I'm married and my partner, like, you know, and I, and I gained weight like in year five because I stopped dieting and now they're having all these problems. Do you want me to like zero tolerance my spouse? And I, you know, I don't like, whatever, like I'm I'm right. I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, I'm like, you know, I mean, um, I have my strong opinions about things, but I mean, I don't, I, I think what's hard is like, how do you not, discard human beings <laughs> but also yeah. like demand mm-hmm. respect and humanity um yeah. so' it's yeah. it's, a, it's a it's a it's a delicate line or whatever but that was a big one for me um now I mean this is actually in my current relationship and it really upped the standard for me and, and sort of transform me um, is I, my partner now is like he never ever 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 comments on anybody's body. And it was, it's like this mm-hmm. yes, other people's yes, bodies. Yes. Other people's yeah. bodies mm-hmm. at all. And it's like, it's this, like, I've been thinking of it as a sacred silence that we mm-hmm. don't have in our culture. Mm-hmm. Like there is so much, there's mm-hmm. a lot of like unnecessary, hurtful, damaging chatter that I don't even think like I mean, literally, I think some of the food and body chatter. If you recorded somebody saying this stuff, they're, I don't think they would even remember having said it. Like it's just so ubiquitous, right? That we would just comment sure. on yeah. everything all the time. So like when he I, that that for me, like the silence was just so beautiful. And, and it was, and it was so medicinal for me to be in a partnership with someone who just refused to engage with other people in that way. And, and so I think for me, it's like yeah. looking for that quality in partnerships or teaching yourself or, you know, teaching your partner that, I mean, cause I, I believe like, I believe we can teach our partners these things. Like obviously not everyone, some people are going to resist and hold on to their, garbage. But like, if you know, I think a lot of people right. are really flexible and are willing to say like, yeah, actually I can get rid of that practice. So that's a big one. Um, yeah. I think another thing, another big one for me, and I'm speaking very subjectively just like in terms of what felt like level ups for me in the realm of, like, body acceptance, fat fat positivity. But, like, going from the belief that, like, no one would actually ever be attracted to me, but that I could trick them into loving me with my amazing personality. (laughs) um, Letting go of that, like, that trash, and just, that was really big. And I think, like, I, um, in that fat positive relationship I had in my mid-20s, it was, like, the first time that someone was, like, can I watch you shower? Can I watch you take your clothes off? Mm. Like you are so hot, mm. and I just I didn't think as a fat person that was accessible to me. And hell yeah, it's accessible to you. Um, so I just want to like <laughs> yeah. make, make that really clear. Like it, you know, it's okay. And for me, I once I had that, I was like, I'm never going back to like weird ambivalence that I dealt with before, like from my partners. You know, um, right. I'm mm. like, I'm never going back. It was so delicious, and I was just like okay this is my new um, new like new rule you have to think i'm super hot and it's like and i mean i think what's amazing is <laughs> I like i love it yes love that. <laughs> it's like it has totally worked like i've not ever yes. since i dated that person i'm like 39 now since i dated that person i was 24 when I, you know i have not dated anyone who doesn't think i'm totally banging so it's like it's absolutely possible um so <laughs> i think like don't totally. settle That's for amazing. less um, I don't know. Those, those sure. are just my like. Those are just my first <laughs> thoughts on that question. <laughs> I think that's perfect. You answered it perfectly
1: too, and and it's a, it was a perfect like cross section of your work in general too. Because when I think about body positivity, especially now, I think about it as very like Instagram friendly, which is inherently right. like anti mm. many different right, bodies, right. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about it as something that people throw on with a hashtag. And, um, so I loved your tiered, you know, yourself, how other people treat you. And then institutionally, because, um, in your work and so many others, I know when we're talking about body positivity and fat fat positivity specifically, we're talking about not just saying, Oh, okay, I guess I'm going to love my body now. It's about like (laughs) radically, Questioning or critically examining why we were taught to not love those bodies in the first place or or whatever. So you answered Mm -hmm. that perfectly to me. Thank you. Um, So I recently attended one of your seminars at your, at your, on your, um, virtual body positivity university on, um, I think it was body positive dating and relationships. Um, and in it, you discuss something that I had never heard of, which I don't think is technically yours. So you can credit it, but I'd love for you to explain what you called the dating industrial complex, because (laughs) I found that
0: fascinating. Yeah. So the dating industrial complex is, it is a borrowed phrase. Um, it's from the book it's like 10 years old it's from the book um outdated why dating is ruining your love life um it was written <laughs> yeah yeah it was uh, it was written by Samhita who was like was until recently the editor at Teen Vogue Um, and it's so funny because she is so ashamed of this book. Like she is like notoriously like, oh my God, I can't believe (laughs) I wrote that book. And I'm like, I feel that way about some of my older work. I mean, it just like transformed (laughs) my life though. I'm like, I would never, I would flag this all day. Like if I had written this book, I would just be like wearing it as a shirt all the time. Um, so but like, what I loved was, so, so you like, right, you hear, you see a, a title like this and you're like, oh, cool. She's going to like explain, she's going to give me the hot tips, right? Like, and then she basically, mm-hmm. it's a kind of, it was kind of like the most amazing bait and switch because she's like, it's ruining your love life because essential, and she specifically was talking primarily about straight dating, but she was like, you know, the yeah. reason yeah. that it sucks so bad is because of gender socialization and there's no way to escape the fact that like cis Mm. het men have been taught to destroy your soul (laughs) um yeah you know and i and capitalism capitalism. a million percent (laughs) yeah Yeah, but it's like you know and she was like this is all bigger than all of us and I, i think that what i loved about it was she really she really sort of you know named the elephant in the room and kind of left almost with a tone of like joyful disappointment like like almost like this radical hopelessness that it's like you know if you can somehow make this work like Kudos to you because everything is stacked Mm. against you. Um, Literally, dating is like a process of, yeah, I mean, to go back to what you were saying, like, dating as we know it, um, especially straight dating, literally is romantic capitalism. Um, I mean, it's like what we do with money except with human beings. Um, and so, yeah. you know, and I do, anyway, it's so like she called it the dating industrial complex literally because of, because of its connection with capitalism and these various really horrible oppressive systems that do destroy the human spirit that do make connection very, 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 very difficult. Um, and anyway, I can go on and on singing the praises of this book, but it was just so powerful yeah. to hear. Like someone, because I think there is this, I'm sh- and I know you know this. There is this kind of victim blaming rhetoric that's in a lot of dating literature and stuff, where yes. it's like you can just mm. smile your way through this, you can just pheromone your way into this. Right. You here's the secret, like, and if you don't, if you don't have this thing, it's like you, that you have the wrong attitude. It's that maybe you're not getting out there enough. It's that maybe you're like not doing your like yeah. ten hours a week of <laughs> totally. dating apps upkeep, you know. Right. And and it's like I just think that's it. It ends up I think that self help or empowerment rhetoric like ends up becoming kind of a victim blaming narrative when i just feel like this book was Mm. just like nope like was just like it's uh, it's totally a third answer it's that like every one of us was set up to fail um and that's what's really happening Mm. it's not that you didn't smile enough it's not that you're not wearing the right like perfume or whatever (laughs) it's that it's the patriarchy you know
1: yes exactly i loved it I love the resource that you used in that seminar that I referenced earlier, like breaking down this, you know, dating industrial complex, saying that we could, we live in a culture now where dating and relationships are characterized by lots of binaries mm, by mm, the mm. sense that there are good people and bad yes. people that we conceal our needs there's tons of dissatisfaction disf- dissatisfaction and all the isms of dis, uh fat phobia and ableism and ageism things like that when we could live yes. in a in we could if we think critically about the culture of dating and romance that we're participating in, it could be one based on connection and intuition and pleasure um, and accessibility. And I just thought that was like, it was so empowering for me to think about how things like you said, patriarchy and capitalism have affected the way I even value myself and other people and that connection with that other person and like how mm-hmm. how how I score it in my
0: weird capitalistic scoring brain yeah, you know <laughs> it's a million percent sure. a million percent i kind of want to share like i'm i'm feeling really drawn to share that like you know i before fat phobia uh, you know obviously i like i said i was introduced to fat phobia at 5 but i had an active love life right. before then and it was always like it, you know my okay. little childhood love life um very innocent very sweet yeah. but like i remember how easy it was i rem- I. I remember, you know, I remember how easy connection was and it wasn't about, it was about seeing someone sparkle and it wasn't hard, Mm. you know, like I remember just being Mm -hmm. like, I like you and the people who liked me. The people who I liked liked me back. And it's like we, we sort of have, yeah. I mean, there, there is something really beautiful about, and and going back to that list, right? Like another one that's on it is ease. Like, you know, there, like that's another mm-hmm. thing that like capitalism does not believe in or does uh, or th- actively destroys is like the human, the, like the reality that a lot of human interactions can be preeminated by ease. Um, and so I think about like ease is the, biggest word I think of when I think about connection before fat phobia. And then after fat phobia, I basically, um, you know, was getting like my crushes were my abusers. And, um, Mm. you know, and so and I, I just found that like the very people who were abusing me like became the people whose approval I began to seek and you know and so and oh then god. as an adult and that's the complex yes
2: oh my god oh yeah like just like i just... want that to sink in just a little bit cuz like yes oh my god absolutely
0: yeah i mean i think a lot of us can relate to that because i mean we're we're i mean unfortunately right when we think about patriarchy capitalism all these all of these different systems they are teaching us to valorize and desire aggregators of power who are not coincidentally typically My abusers end. right um For sure. so it, it's like all it's it's just in it's i think what's really sick and kind of extraordinary about it is like how it all gets wired through our desire and our genitals and stuff like that like i'm just like mm-hmm. i don't know how all <laughs> that happens but it's pretty complicated yeah. uh-huh. um but like anyway so i just I, I remember think you know i remember realizing like Oh right, like when so all of that experience of like growing up and losing my connection to ease and intuition and you know all this stuff and and desiring abusers. So when I became an adult and started dating, and that same feeling of someone gaslighting me and making me feel like trash, that didn't set off any alarms, right? Because like wow. that that had been mapped onto my brain and my desire map as normal. And so, and I think this is what, this is what rape culture is. This is, you know, this is like what all the, you know, it's like, it's just really, so it took a long time to build those alarms or reconnect to those alarm systems. It took a long time to reconnect to my internal alarm system. And it's fascinating because once I was able to reconnect to that, I started all of the markers that I saw as, the signs that someone was a quote-unquote high quality mate became red flags Mm. um like i was like are you posing with like a tedx looking situation like on your dating profile are you wearing a (laughs) madonna mic with like some kind of a weird deck behind you i like i've been socialized to believe that that makes you a high quality mate but like actually that's a red flag (laughs) I'm not saying that's that doing hysteria. TED Talks is a red flag, but like posting that as one of your like, you have five images to share a story about yourself. And if that's one of them, I'm like, red flag. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. So Especially again, I'm just
1: de- coming from somebody who's done a TEDx. Yeah, I know I have. So yeah. I love I, have 100%. And I I have to say. <laughs> so I'm calling myself, you know, but I love that you're like, I recognize that I wouldn't even do that. (laughs) Yes, I
0: wouldn't do that. And I think also, to be fair, if you're a cis het man and you're especially if you're a white man, it's a definite red flag. Like, I'm like, I'm cool with other folks. Like, Mm -hmm. if you're like marginalized and you like worked it out to like become legible to a system and you're getting yours, I'm here for it. (laughs) But if you're like a white cis het man, I'm like red flag. Um, (laughs) For sure.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I I love this whole conversation because I think um, everything that you're saying about sort of that disconnect to intuition is something that I think that we see our readers struggle a lot Mm. with, particularly in dating, um, because of the systems that you're talking about too. And I think also like this advent of online dating as well has created this like commodification of connection that like, People just don't, like our brains cannot literally wrap our heads around the idea of how do I make connections in split second decisions about whether or not to swipe swipe left or swipe mm-hmm. right. And like, this is now what dating and connection is, is like, is that type of thing. So I'm curious about how you felt or how you feel like you are getting better connected to that intuition. Like, what are some of the things that you are doing to, to, to push back against these systems that are asking us to really disconnect from ourselves and disconnect from others in such an intense way? Like what are, how are you getting back into intuition?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot about this and, um, I, I work with people a lot on restoring intuition. I literally just, um, co-designed a course called body positive tarot. That's about like using the tarot to reconnect to our intuition as part of recovery from like diet culture and disordered eating. And like Mm. there's an activity, there's sort of like an assignment within the course that, you know, for someone who feels like there's a lot of people who believe this myth, that they just don't have that inner voice, that it just isn't there or it's so quiet and they're never going to be able to restore it. And that's not true. Like that information is always going to be there. It always has been there and you do have access to it. And I, and I think, you know, what's important is to start, it's, it's a, like, if you feel that way, it's important to start with low stakes, gradual things. And so let, let me, let me like be like more specific. So um, if you feel mm. like if someone feels like they have, they feel really disconnected from their intuition, their instinct might be to ask the biggest questions first. Like, you know, should I end this relationship? <laughs> sure. Should I stay in this career? What am I doing with my life? Right. And, and, you know, if, if your intuition is feeling kind of suppressed, don't start with those questions because it's going to lead to frustration. Mm. Actually start with very low stakes questions. Like why did I pick these jeans today and not those or why did I pick this flavor of like soda versus that or this type of ice cream over that and like actually take these low stakes situations where decision making is happening and treat them almost like not not a crime scene in a bad way but like sort of a mystery it's like well how how did I know that I wanted to wear this and not that today. What was it about? Was it the weather? Was it just a mood? Did I know mm. that I was going to be sitting a lot and these are easier to sit in? Or do, do I love the color? Or and, and, and like all of those things become information. Then the next question, it's like, what did my body do that helped me understand that I wanted that? Like, did my mouth water a little? Did I smile? Mm. Was there a feeling in my fingers or maybe my toes or maybe my chest or maybe my stomach? Um, And and so you you Mm. kind of, I think what's great is you can stay at that really low stakes level of decision making for as long as you need to. And once that starts to feel easy, then you can move on to like the next level, right? Which might be like slightly higher stakes um, sure. things. Um, and then, you know, after you've practiced that, you kind of keep going, right? And and you'll find that it's not actually that difficult um, over time, you know, to, to actually connect. All of that is information, Um, And it just kind of I mean, I literally just like today wrote an article about, um, you know, rituals for fall and like how we can take mundane tasks and chores as an opportunity to learn information about ourselves. Like even even mm. if you're like okay, I hate like for example, if you're like I hate cleaning. I don't even want to talk. I don't even want a chore to be a ritual. It's like, well, how do you know you okay. hate it? Why do you hate it? Like like all these kinds of things. Like and it not not to say like mm. not to not to gaslight yourself, but to be like, how do I know that I hate this? Like, where is that feeling living? Mm -hmm. Um, you don't have to do it, but it's like, take that opportunity to be like, what is this feeling that I have that lets me know that? And then, you know, and then I think, right, like when we, when we take it into the context of dating and relating, we can begin to connect to like, this doesn't actually feel good, Um, And I think what's really hard is a lot of us are so gaslit that we can't access that feeling or we're, we're, we're experiencing that this doesn't feel good as a sign that you should keep going, you know? Wow.
2: Yeah. No, that's so interesting. And I love that idea of, of slowing down and checking in with our patterns of behavior, both in a way to say like, look at how I am making intentional or unintentional decisions that actually serve me really well on a regular basis. And what are the patterns that aren't serving me well too? Like, what are the patterns that are that are so deeply ingrained that I can say, wait, where did I learn that yes. from? Yeah. Who, like, who taught me that, yes. right? And can be like, I know that I learned this somewhere. And so yeah. I know that I can unlearn it. I can decide not to do that anymore. 100%. And I just love that idea that we are like, we have so much more autonomy over ourselves and how we experience each other and the world than we give ourselves credit for. And I think mm-hmm. that it's beautiful to to really lean into that and recognize that like we are actors with choices in so many of the things that we do and we can make better choices for ourselves and for other people.
0: Yes. and I just, I just, I love that I'm clapping. Um, I, I, I have to (laughs) share like this thing. Um, a friend of mine named, um, Julian like taught me that I, it's just so beautiful. They were like, um, radical honesty is such a powerful tool. Like just being able to sort of say, like Mm. for example, like I was going through a really hard time with dating patterning and what they encouraged me to do was to be like, today I am choosing to date a narcissist who treats me like a sexual servant and I accept that. (laughs) Um, You know, instead of being like, this is fine, this is fine, right? This is fine. Um, I love that.
2: I love it. And just
0: being like, I radically accept the person in me who wants to be with this narcissist to treat me like a sexual servant. And, and I, it was so wow. powerful, <laughs> just like every day being yes. like, today right. I choose this. I choose this today. And it was like such, it was so mm. transformative to just, and, and you think, because right, I think we're so preoccupied with sort of hiding the truth from ourselves. And I think when we think of radical honesty in a relationship context, we're often thinking about it, doing that with another person, like reading a person or whatever. But like, we don't, I think yeah. we can do that with ourselves. And I can't tell you like how extraordinary it was to just sort of radically accept myself and the totality of the truth um, because it, it opened up – it opened up like that, that possibility for – Inquiry, it opened up that possibility for mm. you know, observation and analysis, right? Because I think at a certain point, you know, day fifty, when you're like today I choose to be with a narcissist or survey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like dang it kind of starts to like <laughs> this like, is huh. day fifty. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. I want to read that
1: like survivor's journal, like day fifty. Yeah. I am
0: choosing this for again.
2: Sure. <laughs> yep. Every day I'm choosing. For Look, the 50th time. That
1: is so <laughs> funny.
2: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: Totally, uh, like off-topic, um, question, but sort of on-topic. What are your thoughts on being, um, not high maintenance?
0: Yeah, I mean, I just had this great conversation with a disability rights activist, um, named Alex, um, and they're at Glamp Beauty, Glamp Beauty on uh, on Instagram. Um, oh my god. I such love that. A great name. It's so good. That's such a great yes. name. and so we had this great conversation. Um, it's actually published on Body Positive University, but I feel I feel like they did such a good job of of unpacking the myth of high maintenance um, and how it's just poop, garbage, trash. I I just love that. I just love like <laughs> I'm like high maintenance is. I mean, really, right? Like the honestly, what's what's so interesting and ironic is the person who demands that someone not be high maintenance is themselves high maintenance because the labor that's required to not the the labor that's required to, act like you have no needs as a human being is massive. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just, I think it's, it's so oh funny yeah. how it's like a yep. feedback loop. It's like, no, there's no one, no one is, even the person who is demanding that of another person is in fact, perhaps the most high maintenance of us all. Yeah. Um, yeah. For sure. So I think yep. like there's that. And, and I feel like I really want to give props to Alex because I feel like they, they did such a great job. They do such a great job of kind of talking about that. They're like, so, you know, specifically they're like, okay, as someone with a disability, um, there are certain things that I can and can't do. So for example, this concept, this like romanticized idea of spontaneity as a disabled person doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I need to know how am mm-hmm. I going to get there? What are the public transportation lines that get there? I can't walk around magically yeah. in the rain for hours on end because I, have, right. you know, it's like, I just can't do that. Um, and I thought that it was so incredible, you know, and and they specifically also sort of talk about how it's like, you don't have to be a disabled person to have a need, obviously. Um, they were For like, sure. you know, you, you right. don't have to be someone who gets overstimulated very easily to want to have a date in a quiet place, not at a bar. You don't have, and, and I think when right. it comes to being a, like a fat person, you um, you know, like this idea of chill, low maintenance, whatever, like, well, if I need to know about the dimensions of the seating and I need to know whether I'm going to get side eyed and I need to know if I can sit on, like if there's only bar seating and I'm going to have to be like balancing perched on the edge of a stool that's like minimalist and gorgeous, but is exceedingly uncomfortable. Like I need to know all of those (laughs) things beforehand, you know? And so, um, and and I think like, so, so right. Like, who does high maintenance just off the bat sort of re- like like leave out right but like specifically I think it yeah. leaves out everybody but like certainly if you're someone who whose body has not been considered in the structures of our society that's gonna be a real right. issue right and so I mean but anyway I, I think another thing that I love that they, they talk about is like you know that how um, there's sort of a sense that this this premise or this lie of of low the low maintenance, the chill person, the person with no needs or whatever, basically it sets it up for a bait and switch. So as needs mm. become inevitably become visible, the longer you're with someone, you feel like they lied, that they betrayed you, mm. that they aren't the same person mm. that they said they were. And then all of a sudden now you've got an accusation sort of being thrown around about lying. Right. Um, when in actuality that person is just trying to often, I mean, I'm not trying to blanket, forgive everybody for, for fibbing about everything. Um, (laughs) but you know, when it comes to that, that sense of like high maintenance or whatever, right. Um, essentially that, that moment is, it's inevitably going to become clear that yes, you are dating a human being with traumas and needs, <laughs> right. and they poop and they need food, right? Like it's just like all these "quote uh-huh. unquote" inconvenient things about being a person. Um, yeah, you know. Yeah. Then be- sure. and, I, and I just think that it really goes back to this capitalist, ableist framework of like, you know, and, and I think of it, right, like some, I, I use the phrase like social Darwinism. It's like, you know, it, it's sort of a version of that where it's like, instead of this, only the strong will survive, only the, those without needs will survive, which is, who My is God, that? that is who it. is that person? Nobody. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I just kind of, I mean, and again, going back to Alex, one of the things I love is they're like, what if instead of, I have no needs. I'm chill. Whatever works. Instead of that being considered romantic, what if like sweet talk was? How can I take care of you? What do you need right now? Mm. How can I make sure that you feel safe? Like it's like why isn't that? And and I think I love that when they said that because like that is that is so beautiful and sweet. Like to me, that is like romantic. That is kind. That is caring. Yeah. The demand that you have. No trauma, no needs, like nothing, right? Like you're just kind of a blank slate upon which I can put all of my expectations. Um, it's just so anti-humanitarian, right? and it's so anti-intimacy, you know? Yeah.
2: Definitely. Well, and it like it evokes a deep empathy in me too, mm. right? Because like if we're asking others to not have needs, yes. like it must mean that we're just so disconnected from our own yes. needs too, mm. right? Like that's that has to be it, and like that's a deep wound to be carrying around to not know what you need and also to like inflict that on other people over and over again by demanding that they not know what they need. It's just like, it's amazing to me sometimes how, how deeply wounded so many of us are and the ways in which we inflict that wound onto other people. Like it's just, and this conversation I think is elucidating like so much of that. So, So thank you for being willing to to talk about it and bringing it to us.
0: Yeah, I mean, my pleasure. I mean, I'm I'm also thinking, Like, I think you're right. And I think in addition to that, I'm specifically thinking about how systems invisibilize the needs of certain people and and it hyper magnifies Mm -hmm. the needs of others, right? Like a disabled person's needs are magnified and up for scrutiny and whatnot. But like similar to, I mean, like, right, like I I think of the analogy of like another myth of like the self-made man where it's like, you know, or this self-made person who actually has a trust fund or something like that. And it's like, actually, no, you (laughs) are absolutely like relying on the person who prepares your food, the person who lays the roads, the person who made your vehicle. Right. And so it's like, but those Mm -hmm. things get invisibilized because, right, like we're supposed to believe in this mythology of this person who by just sheer will alone can create this incredible fortune. And, and I, I think similarly, mm. right, like the needs of straight people, the needs of cisgender people, the needs of like cis het men, right? Like these are needs that get invisibilized. And then the needs of everyone else is our actual needs, right? Um, so I just, I think there's sure. something to be said about the, the labor that the structures do to sort of obscure needs of some and then overemphasize the needs of others
2: yeah and the ways in which we tell ourselves the lie around the fact that we don't have needs because our needs are already met in so many ways right like the idea of like yeah like I'm a self-made man but I don't know how this computer works like somebody else does they did it for me right like it's just such a good point so thank you for thank you for sharing that as well um I have another question that's sort of like off topic, but we're we're like talking about so many different things, all of the intersections, and I, I love it so much. But one of the things that you have said is that you um, have a rule that you swipe left on people who are signaling some sort of class privilege. And I am so curious about that and want to know... Um, what that means to you and why you made that decision.
0: Oh, I mean, this is so big, right? This is such a huge... This is like its own novel tome, whatever. (laughs) For sure, yeah. But, But, you know, so like most straight women, I was socialized to sort partner viability through class, Um, And specifically Mm. through education, which sort of ends up being a bit of a um, interchangeable element kind of with class. And I mean, it's really it's really interesting. I had this total lightning. So for years I did that. I was like, oh, a high quality mate is a person who has my educational level or higher, um, which Mm. is its own pile of garbage but again we've all been like maybe not all of us but like certainly straight women have been socialized to do that and so um, anyway uh, and I you know and I Kept at it, even though it felt like garbage. I felt like certainly every time I partnered with someone like that, I felt like they saw me as their inferior. I felt like they saw me as someone who mm. was um, like, I mean, there, there was just a lot of condescension built into um, mm. into the partnerships that came from that kind of strat strategizing. Um, and, you know, it's so funny, right, because like all of them were completely hot for my bod. So I still had that rule. <laughs> but but like meanwhile, we're maybe being like sexist dirt bags, uh, like in other ways that I kind of like yeah. hadn't quite, you know, created rules or boundaries around. So anyway, I kept doing it, kept going at it. Um, I didn't like it. I would consistently feel gaslit and all these kinds of things. Um, and then I had a lightning bolt moment. When I found out when I basically like learned the research that um, straight men get advanced degrees for radically different reasons than women do. Um, Mm. And so straight men tend to get advanced degrees for money and status and career advancement. And women across the board tend to get um, advanced degrees to change the world. Um, At least this is like the reported data. So I'm like, oh my God, I've been aggregating partners based on a literal value incompatibility if the data are correct. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is like a total, like it's just like, that's just a terrible practice, right? Like literally if I was like, yeah, the best thing to do is to find someone who does not align with your values and go for them. Um, (laughs) You know? And so I mean like, Right. And then I think it just all once I once I once I read that data, I was like, oh, my God, of course, my partner, Mm. if I am looking for a partner based on their educational thing, educational status, their educational status is ultimately about maintaining the systems that right, like people Mm. like people who strategize who like. Basically, people who get advanced degrees for the purpose of career ascendancy, like, exclusively or perhaps primarily, um, they're, like, for the most part, people who um, want to continue to, like, they're accessing that system so that they can maintain the privileges and resources that that system gives them. Um, And so I just sort of was like, wow, like, I... I want to use and I am using my higher education to like smash the patriarchy, right? Like that's what I want to do. Mm. I'm never going to find a collaborator um, as a partner who is trying to maintain that system so they can keep the powers and resources that were given to them by that system. So it was just like, whoa, right? And that was once I understood that i was like oh my god i need to radically change what i am looking for and that goes back to what i was saying about how all the things that i was seeing before as signs of a quote-unquote high quality partner which is such a like weird coded shitty phrase um for sure i mean i'm like i kind of like on the one hand i'm like I, I have sort of a pure and innocent concept of like you know what that could mean to some people, but I also know it's loaded like America for Americans. I'm like I know what that means, mm-hmm. and I know what high quality partner <laughs> means. You know, um, right yeah. so, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, but like you know, so so once I like that information kind of settled in, and I like allowed it to change, like I mean, because there is a grief involved in accepting that a strategy you've been working mm. for most of your life isn't working and that you're going to have to let go of this for idea sure, of aggregating sure. like yep. capital and shit with another person. um, It's painful. So you have to kind of like lay that to the ground, like just bury it, have a ritual, whatever you need to do, girl, like just do it. Um, <laughs> sure. But anyway, so after I was like, after I internalized the information, grieved, whatever I started, the world just started to look different. And I actually changed my, Mm. I changed um my like criteria or criterion for uh for partnership from education to sense of comfort, sense of ease. Um mm. and once mm. that happened, it just like it completely changed the game again for me. Like once I started to seek comfort, um, I started to find like of course I grew up working class. Right, like so, a lot of the codes and a lot of the stuff that comes from my um, childhood—that's totally just second nature to me. um, I'm gonna have the best chance of having really high levels of intimacy with someone who has a similar background to me. If I had grown up super wealthy, I'd probably have the Mm. same—I'd have the same affinity towards someone who has the same background, just because of like, you know, because of of like that kind of wiring that happens when you're a kid. Right. Um, And so I started to. Basically, like, I kind of took a break from just, I was like, I'm not dating, I'm not dating, like, six-figure dudes. I'm not trying to date them. I'm, like, and I'm I'm, uh, running as far as I can and swiping left on anybody who's trying to signal that visually to people. And I sort of found there was, like, Hmm. very typical deck that would happen on, like, these apps where it's, like, again, the Madonna mic with the TED Talk-esque, TED Talk-adjacent look. Usually, like, some athleticism was involved like wh- like sc- yeah scaling a mountain or something like that um uh-huh. there's usually another thing is ex- proximity to an expensive meal um mm-hmm.
2: usually
0: like travel that is like pretty pricey Um, and I'm trying Mm -hmm. to think of a fifth one. I don't know if there's a fifth one, but those were like the ones that kept cycling through. And I was like, oh, these are these are the symbols that you're using to convey a particular kind of thing. Um, and I was like, I'm just not going to date anybody. I'm going to just take a break from trying to date that. Um, and I'm going to just do what feels fun and good and comfortable. And not too long after that, I like met my current partner who I've just never felt more comfortable with. I don't think anyone Aww. in my life. And it was like, Love and it's that. like, yeah, it turns out that when you prioritize comfort, you're in a good position to get more comfort. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Right there.
2: That's awesome.
1: That is so funny. Something I'm hearing like just as like an undercurrent to all of your answers is this radical permission that you're giving yourself Mm. um and this is not really a question more just like a comment um as we get into our final wrap-up questions that um i've heard i hear again and again in the core of your answers like that it's okay to ask, it's okay to prioritize comfort. It's okay to f- to accept pleasure. It's okay to listen to that inner voice in you, um, and it's okay to radically reject these uh, the conditioning, this um, the script that we've been given about what bodies and what people we are valuing and listening mm. to. Um, so, thanks for giving mm. us all permission in this interview. Mm, yes, <laughs> um, we. Uh, wrap up our interviews by asking our interviewees three questions. First, what is a piece of relationship advice that you used to believe that you no longer believe or no longer find helpful or applicable in your life?
0: Uh, I mean, okay, so like I I will say for a long time I believed like people don't change. Um mm-hmm. which I think a lot of us have been told and I mean, I don't want to throw out the entire, I mean, there's wisdom to that. Um, I don't I don't want to completely discard it but I think that I had it as sort of like a really like a cardinal rule um right. and I think for me mm-hmm. it went against everything that I had personally experienced in my own life like specifically with myself right. I'm like I've radically changed like uh, yes healing yes. is possible right <laughs> yeah. like, and I'm just like you know I think for me it's like well like my value like I have one of my values is healing and one of my values is like accountability you know like and, and things that are about the human capacity to be dynamic and i just i just refuse yeah. to live in a mm. world where i believe that like whatever you were socialized to be you know when you were 7 years old is who you will remain um, and I understand that the rule is there mm. to sort of protect people. And I, I mean, I think like, take, take it with a grain of salt, but like, for me, I'm like, I can't keep enacting this rule when I know on a, for, on a firsthand basis, you know, that I don't want to be held to that standard. Right. Um, yeah. and so I think, I think that's, I think that's the one I'm thinking of. That's powerful.
2: Yeah. That's so great. Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, we also, every episode, we do a blind date on our podcast, which is when we recommend something that we think that our listeners are really going to like. Um, so this week, we want you to do the blind date. So this week, our blind date is going to be...
0: Crime Scene Kitchen. It is... <laughs> Ooh. It is a show... I am where... intrigued. <laughs> yes. Okay. So it's like, it's like hosted <laughs> by Joel McHale from Community. And, and um and it's, it's basically like... Cool. So a bunch of teams of people. There's a bunch of clues, and teams have to. Oh my god! Out, it right now. Yes, they have to figure <laughs> out what the pastry is from the clues in the crime scene <gasps> kitchen, and I, then make it.
2: Amazing! It's
0: pretty fun. If you that is so wholesome. I know. I, it's hurting I know. I know. It's like the true. If you like are a true crime and a food show person, which I'm like at the intersections of both. It's like so yes. good. <laughs> That is oh, so that. charming. That is so charming. <laughs> so good. Um, okay,
1: and finally, Virgie, where can people find you? Because I definitely think they should find you. Um, and how can they best support you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I am most active on Instagram at Virgie Tovar. Um, please subscribe to my podcast, Rebel Eaters Club, where getting into like we're in pre-production for season three right now it's going to be really good um and then my new book is coming out the body positive journal and then finally like i would love it if you subscribe to my newsletter body positive university um you can find it uh through the link in my bio on instagram or it's um body positive university bulletin dot com
1: awesome. Well, I, I thank you so much for being here with us for your vulnerability today and in your work. Um, I know you must hear this a lot, but you're obviously like radically shifting the grounds on which a lot of us stand and didn't consensually stand on, I should say. Um, (laughs) And uh, I'm just so grateful. I know Sam and I uh, deeply appreciated this conversation Um, and to our listeners, If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to stay tuned for more Head & Heart Work conversations every two weeks on our primary feed, anywhere where you can get your podcasts. And if all else fails,
2: just break up.